Good morning. Where'd you guys all come from? <laughs> I hadn't looked back in a while. It is good to be together as we continue in John. Uh, one of our wonderful elders, Daniel, brought us God's word to conclude chapter 10 last week. And so today we get to jump into chapter 11 and talk about this story that is pretty well known and it is pretty beautiful. Here's the name of the sermon, Death, Love, and Glory. Death, Love, and Glory. And not only is it the name of the sermon, it's the outline of the sermon. We're beginning this new chapter in John with this story that includes all of chapter 11, that we're going to do four sermons on Lazarus or on Christ and what he did through Lazarus. This story is one that's incredible, it's deep, it's theological, it's miraculous, personal, and specific. Today, we're going to begin the story, which we have cut into four different sermons, specifically so we could pull out the richness of what this story is about and what took place and understand more of God, who he is, what he does, and what he's already accomplished for us. May we just start with the fact that death seems final. Love, according to the world, honestly seems pretty conditional. And glory seems pretty irrelevant because it conjures up these ideas of thoughts of likes, views, and shares on social media is what comes to mind when I think of glory in the world. But death, love, and glory take on a completely different meaning in the kingdom of God. So meet me in chapter 11, which Scott just read, as we study verses 1 through 15. We've been studying John for quite a while, and in it, we've seen Jesus call himself the bread of life, John 6, 35. We've talked, he's talked about being living water, or the water of life, John 4, 14. The light of life, John 8, 12. What we will experience in this chapter is that Jesus is life itself. Jesus has healed the blind man since birth. He had this handicap since he was born, and Jesus had forgiven him of his sins, the Jewish leaders and teachers of the law wanted to condemn this Jesus who had been causing a ruckus. Does anyone use that word? A ruckus all around Jerusalem. And then they wanted to argue with him specifically because he identified himself with and as God. This has created a true hate for him because he's not the Messiah that anyone would expect or really that anyone was ready for. This is what Jesus has been experiencing, and now we're going to see this situation of Jesus' dear friend being sick, and the word has caught up to Jesus and his disciples. So that's where we pick it up. Let's go. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Lazarus is specifically known because of the story that we're about to talk about. He did not have the popularity of his sister Martha or Mary, and so the author, John, decides to make known where he was from, who he's related to, and that he was ill. So here we see in verse 2, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. I love that John includes this explanation of who this Mary is in this gospel account because, honestly, this hasn't taken place. John hasn't talked about it in his gospel account yet, but he knew that the story of Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet had been circulated throughout this region. In fact, he starts to talk about it in verse 12. So we're going to skip to verse 12 for just a moment. 
It says in verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. All right, real quick, spoiler alert. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. All right, I know, what? Crazy. And the story that you're wondering about is the one that continues in verse 2 where it says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at a table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Do you, can you kind of tell John's opinion on Lazarus? Woo! Leave her alone, Jesus replied, verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the story that John in chapter 11 is talking about. He's pointing to, and he hasn't even taught about it. He hasn't even written about it yet. But we're not going to unpack this story today, but we're going to teach it after the new year, I promise. Yeah. But know this, worship for God from the heart is never in vain. I'll give you my point on that passage real quick before we jump into it in a few months. Worship for God from the heart is never in vain. This is the Mary, this is the Martha, this is the Lazarus that we come to in chapter 11. And Lazarus has been sick, and so enter this narrative, verse 3 of chapter 11. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Word was sent to Jesus, which would probably take one full day to get to him, yet in his omnipotence, I'm sure He already knew what was going on, even if word hadn't gotten to him yet. The one you love is sick is the term that is used to identify the close friendship between Jesus and Lazarus. And to be honest, the rest of Scripture is pretty quiet about this. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It won't end in death, eh? If you read ahead, Lazarus dies. And for the world, death seems to be the end, doesn't it? It seems final, and it feels unnatural when someone you know ceases to live. Someone you have done life with all of a sudden doesn't have life anymore. It doesn't seem natural. But Jesus says here about his friend Lazarus that it won't end in death. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that he's going, what he's going to do after four days. But as Jesus speaks to his disciples and comforts them, they would assume by Jesus' speech that death will not take place for Lazarus. But what Jesus says is that death won't be the end. Death won't have the final answer. Death won't be the finish line. Because simply this, when you're with Jesus, death doesn't win. When you're with Jesus, there's a theological term that says in Christ. You can replace with Jesus with in Christ. Death does not 
win. So this illness will turn out for the glory of God, Jesus says, for the glory of the Son of God. This illness will put the glory of God on display. This illness will make Jesus look amazing, is what he's saying. When you hear that somebody died, do you ever automatically go to, well, I wonder how God's going to get glory in this? When they're close to me, I don't think that. When they're close to me, I grieve. When they're close to me and I struggle with the fact that they're no longer with me, I run towards not believing it. I run towards isolating myself. I run towards sadness. But when they're not close, to be totally honest, when I just hear of, you know, a second to someone I know who knows someone who has passed away, honestly, it usually is my first thought. I wonder how God is going to use this to draw people to himself. But I know God has used death in my life to draw me. I know God has used death in my life to refine me and to transform me more into his likeness because death always points to our mortality and our need for God's eternal love. For you and I, if we've trusted Jesus Christ, death does not have final say. It is yet a speed bump unto eternity. The world either believes that everything is final at death, that they just cease to exist, or they believe that if someone is a good enough person, they end up in heaven with pearly gates, bearded dudes, and angels playing harps. Technically, I wrote angles playing harps because I can't spell angels, apparently. But really, what is final in eternity is finality of being away from Christ. Hell is not something we like to talk about, is it? H-E double hockey sticks. That's how we try to make it sound a little less scary. But the reality is that if hell is real, we ought to be more urgent. Not because we can save anyone, but because God can save people using us. There was a story that was told many years ago about a man who was driving his car on the interstate outside of Los Angeles late one evening. A significant earthquake rumbled through the region, and so the man pulled his car over to the side of the road to wait it out. The earthquake was severe, but it only lasted a few seconds, so the man pulled his car back onto the road, took a left onto a bridge, and began to cross over said bridge. About halfway across the bridge, he noticed the taillights of the car in front of him suddenly disappeared. He stopped his car. He got out. He realized that a section of the bridge had fallen out during the earthquake. The car earthquake in the, the car in front of him had driven into the chasm at full speed, plunging nearly 75 feet into the water below. The man turned around and realized several more cars were headed towards the break. He began to wave his arms frantically. People driving across the bridge outside of Los Angeles at 3 a.m. are usually not very likely to stop for what looks like a crazy person on the side of the road. So he watched as four cars drove past, plunging to their deaths below. He then saw a large bus coming towards him, towards the break. He made up his mind that if that bus was going to go off the bridge, it was going to take him with him. So what did he do? He stood in the path of the bus. He waved his arms. The bus honked and flashed its lights, but the man would not move. The bus driver got out. He saw the danger and angled the bus so no more cars could pass on the bridge. 
What would you do if you were the first person to notice the break in the bridge? My guess is that you would do exactly what this man did. But spiritually, there are people headed for something far, far worse than a break in the bridge. This is why we share the gospel with others. And essentially, spirituality, or in a spiritual sense, we wave our arms so that they don't have to drive into the chasm of the bridge. There are people that are headed towards an eternity without Christ, a finality of not ever getting to be with Christ because they don't know him. They may have heard of Jesus, but they don't know how wonderful and beautiful a relationship with Jesus really is. That is what it means for you to not end in death. It means that you are redeemed. It means that you are reconciled, that you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. But you, my friends, you, my brothers and sisters, do not have to fear death because of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, one of my favorites who just passed away about a year and a half ago, said it this way, I don't fear death, I fear dying. There's so much truth to that quote. As Christians, we have hope, we have surety, but we do not know what it feels like to die. We are so unfamiliar with it. Honestly, it's what's used to scare people around Halloween because we're so afraid of the unknown. So this sickness, Jesus says, will not end in death. So what does he say it's for? He says in the middle of verse 4, no, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Here's what he's essentially saying. Take a deep breath, Mary and Martha. This is all about my glory, Jesus says. This is not going to go the way you think. It's not even going to go the way that you want it to, but it is about my glory. See, death isn't what they should be enamored with. The glory of God is. They shouldn't be so worried that death is going to take place for a person that they love, but the fact that they're about to experience God's love in a way that they could never imagine before this. See, glory, it's the magnification of God's power. It's the magnification of goodness. Really, it's putting God's godness on display, and that's what we ought to focus on, church. If only we looked at circumstances as opportunities for God to show off who he is, for people to be introduced to Christ through his people and by our responses and trials and difficulties. Jesus says this is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. It seems counterintuitive, and honestly, it kind of seems a little redundant for those of us who know that Jesus is the point. Even as Aaron was leading worship, she said Jesus is the point. But this is the son making known that the glory of God is the manifestation of his son. John Calvin, I'm a fan, says it this way. For we learn from it that God wishes to be acknowledged in the person of his son in such a manner, that all the reverence which he requires to be given to his own majesty may be ascribed to the son. In other words, you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God does? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God says? Look at God's word because it's about Jesus. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus why we make it all about him. 
Daniel read this verse and a few others last week, but I got half of it. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the point, and Jesus is and does point to the glory of God because Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, love is included in this description. Love is included in what we know as the book of John is often called the gospel of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But what we know with this is that John keeps explaining the affection that he has for Lazarus, the affection he has for Mary and for Martha. And John is making abundantly clear how much love is the contributing factor to why Jesus does what he's about to do in the next verse. Verse 6. So, if you have your Bible underlined so, we're going to get to that in a second. So... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. This doesn't seem like someone who either knew that Lazarus was going to die or like someone who really cares or loves Lazarus, that really cares about Lazarus's well-being. Why? So he stayed more ta- two more days. I know for myself, when there is death, I just want to run towards it. It's kind of this weird thing. I probably have more of a Messiah complex than I ought to, and I can't raise anyone from the dead, but I can show my support by grieving with someone who has lost somebody. But even as I wrote that note just now, or a few days ago, I realized that that's not always the case for me. See, this past summer, I had three deaths in my life, three people that influenced me, three people that were important to me, all died within about two weeks of each other. And my response at first was to run towards the situation, but it took a toll on me. Can we just be real? Losing people close to you is terrible. And I just want to acknowledge simply that grieving is okay. Don't just try to make yourself feel better by saying, I'm fine. Grieving is natural, and it's something that we need to do. And guess who's saying that? Someone who's terrible at grieving. At this point in my ministry, I've done a lot more weddings than funerals. A lot more. But that's not always going to be the case. And listen, death is all around us. I've heard other theologians contend in this passage that the reason that Jesus didn't go back right away was because the danger on the way back was too severe, so Jesus was like, no, I'm not going to go back yet, because just in case. Now listen, we've been reading John, and Jesus has constantly Jedi mind trick crowds, hasn't he? He's in a really difficult situation, and then he's like, these are not the Messiah you're looking for, and then he walks away. He goes through a crowd. He could hide himself in plain sight. You know why? Because he's God. And Jesus stayed two more days, not because he didn't care, but because he completely did care. Not because he didn't love Lazarus, but because he loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha so much. So how can that be? Because he already knew Lazarus was dead. 
He knew that grieving was taking place. He knew that he would go back and raise Lazarus from the dead. But after four days, we're not talking about a resuscitation church. We're talking about a resurrection. Because after four days, let's just be real, that body doesn't smell nice anymore. So how is that love? See, resurrection or resuscitation could be a natural event. But resurrection is always a supernatural event. And so he loved them. He strengthened their faith, which would take place after the resurrection. But when we hear strengthening of faith, I think what we think is that we have more faith when our faith is strengthened. We hear, oh, well, he has more faith. This thing happened, and so now he has more faith. And we are too enamored in the church of Jesus Christ with how much faith someone has, rather than the tested faith that someone has gone through. The difference is this. We can misunderstand the amount of faith for spiritual ignorance. Okay, let me unpack that. We think if someone does something dangerous and they prayed, that obviously they're full of faith. Being faithful is not about the amount of your faith. It's about the object of one's faith. When speaking of someone falling off a cliff and that person reaching for a branch to attempt to save themselves, Tim Keller, the theologian, puts it this way, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I was meeting with our worship director, Aaron Cheney, who you guys heard uh, pray before we came up. And she was, we were talking about this passage this week, and we are talking about faith, and we are talking about how God tends to strengthen our faith, to grow us in understanding of how good he is. And she reminded me of the story that I've told countless times in different places at this church about when my oldest daughter, Reagan, was two and a half, and she had a 30-minute seizure in front of my wife and I. That wrecked us. We couldn't get her to stop. We were afraid that she was going to be brain dead. We were afraid that she wasn't going to be able to do anything. And then over the next 36 hours of hell at a hospital room, then eventually getting to take her home, she didn't move. We were afraid she was going to be a vegetable. Now, my wife tends, when I tell that story, to remind me that she trusted God in the whole thing. And I got to be real, I didn't. And yet God used that to strengthen me. God used that experience to help me understand how good he is. If God let my daughter die or let my daughter live, he is still good. And you know what's great? She doesn't remember. Other than me telling the story, Reagan does not remember what happened. God used it for his glory. God used it to make much of himself. God used it to point people to the goodness of who he is. God got glory through that incident because God tested my faith and God gave me more faith and God strengthened my faith in who? Yeah, not in the people that worked at Kaiser. Not in my daughter. We strengthened my faith in who he is. Why? Because as Hebrews 12:2 says, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the provider and maintainer of my faith. He gives me my faith and he grows me in faith. It's all about him. And not only that, that faith that he gives to us and strengthens and allows us to possess, it actually pleases him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. 
and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So God gave me the faith. He strengthens the faith. The faith pleases him. Here's who my God is. He is the ultimate parent that buys a Christmas present for himself. He wraps it up. He places it under the tree. He addresses it to himself. And he gives me and my other siblings credit for it. That's my God. So when my faith was strengthened, guess who got glory? It wasn't me. It wasn't Reagan. It was Jesus Christ who showed up and showed off. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Huh. So, you know, when we read it, sometimes we hear yet. It's not what it says. It says so. And so actually means therefore. So what do we say when it says therefore? What is the therefore therefore? Why is it there? Because God was going to get glory through what he just did. But we still have to wrestle with what love is. Because we talk a lot about love. And we're like, well, loving people, we love others more than ourselves. No, you don't. We're terrible at that. Because what this passage is saying about love, it conflicts with what we think love is. How can we understand that Jesus was loving Lazarus and Mary and Martha by letting Lazarus die? When we think of love, we picture an emotion. We picture heart emojis. We picture the way we feel when someone that we really care about enters into the room or is brought up. So John starts this verse with, so... Therefore, love lets Lazarus die. Love lets him die because his death will help them see in more ways than they know the glory of God. See, love let Lazarus die so they could see the glory of God put on display. Jesus loved them. He stayed two more days. How does this make sense? You'd think if he loved them, he'd, he'd magically just appear there. Because there would be an urgency to get back there with the family to prevent this death from happening or mourn with the family. But John Piper, he puts it this way. Are you ready for this? Because this is going to mess with you. Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. (sighs) So you got to answer, church. What do you believe gives the fullest and longest joy? Will it be that present that someone gave you that loves you that will eventually end up in a garage sale? Or could it be pointing them to the manifestation of the glory of God in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. I would contend that that is love. What I'm not saying is to give everyone in your family million-dollar bills with a gospel track written on it. Okay, that's a pretty lame gift if you're giving that out at Christmas. But nothing is more important than us speaking of, modeling, and pointing people to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us Because true everlasting joy comes from being able to experience and see the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. And let's just get real and practical 
This includes people in your home. This includes your children. This includes your spouse. This includes your parents, younger people. This includes your siblings. Let's just be real. Investing in your family is not easy, but it is an ordained opportunity for every believing person to point to the beauty of our Savior and our Lord in your own home. Real practically, you don't have to force Christ on anyone, including your kids. You just need to be consistent with them when it comes to your devotion to Jesus Christ. So that's way easier. Verse 7. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back. What I love about this is it's like they think Jesus forgot. (laughs) This concern for their teacher, this concern for their Lord is encouraging. In a human sense, what Jesus wants to do is not the best call. It was dangerous. But here's the thing. We usually confuse safety for God's will. And we confuse danger for faith. I've heard before the safest place is in the center of God's will. Is it? I don't know. Jesus was in God's will. That didn't end up that well for him. I don't think that's what it is. The place where God gets the most glory through you is the center of God's will. The place where God gets the most glory through you is the center of God's will. And there are no promises that it'll be safe, but there is promise that it'll be best. But only if you see God's glory, his godness being put on display as the target rather than your, your comfort or your self-preservation. Verse 9. Jesus answers, oh boy, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Okay, not in Alaska. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is, verse 10, when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. This is an interesting and I would contend confusing response of Jesus when the disciples attempted to deter him from going where persecution and possible danger was. But Jesus gives them a simple proverb. Jesus has been attracting some pretty bad attention from an angry mob. The disciples are concerned that if he, they, go back through Judea that they will come into conflict. And Jesus uses this example of day and night. (laughs) Daylight usually refers to walking in the spirit and in goodness and obedience. Or, I'm sorry, uh, daylight refers to that, but darkness refers to death or sin or disobedience. And here it is believed that Jesus is referring to the fact that he is obeying God the Father and that God has a plan that will not be thwarted, church. No matter what his enemies do, it doesn't add or take away hours in the day. And Christ borrows this comparison from day and night. If anyone goes on a journey in the dark, they will frequently stumble is what he's portraying. They'll go off path. They will fall down. But the light of the sun by day, it points out the road so that there is no danger. The calling of the road or to stumble are not things that happen You see the road when you're walking in the light. Whoever then obeys the word of God and does what God commands always has God to guide and direct them through his spirit. 
And with this confidence, they, he, she, we, Jesus, may safely and boldly continue their journey. The contrast, contrast to this is when we get ahead of God and tell him our plans and expect him to bless our plans as a stamp of approval. You know, sometimes you tell him your plans and God goes, as you wish, even though he had nothing to do with it. And this is where we stumble. Difficulties do not differentiate if it's God's will or not, but grace-inspired obedience does. We may say we're following the calling of God when in actuality we're listening for his voice, but we're too busy because we're doing what we want so we can't hear him. Pastor Mike said a few weeks ago that he often said, and he said it well, that when people hear from God, it's coincidental that it often sounds like them. So don't say that you're following God's direction in your life if you're in an active disobedience of his commands. Like driving like a jerk and having a cross on the back of your car, don't do it. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now we read this, let's, let's look into what he's saying. We read this and it's easy to have read ahead and know that Lazarus is not just sleeping. But scripture uses sleep as a metaphor for death consistently because God has the power and intention to resurrect those who are his. So even though their response is literal and it's ignorant, I can see how they got where they did. Look, verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. <laughs> Up until this point, they assumed he was okay because even though word was sent to Jesus and the disciples about Lazarus being sick, Jesus spent two more days not going back. So they probably believed that it wasn't that bad and that Jesus was being smart for not rushing back into Judea because of all the angry people looking for him. But look at verse 13, as John explains. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples meant, thought he meant natural sleep. Oh, disciples. Verse 14, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This seems to be almost insensitive, doesn't it? It almost sounds as if Jesus is glad that Lazarus is dead, but what he is glad about is that the glory of God may be revealed by this. I'm glad I was not there, Jesus says, so that you may believe. What we will see when Jesus resurrects Lazarus is the fact that it was after four days that this was not resuscitation, this was not a trick, this was only by God's supernatural intervention that put on display God's glory through his power, and hear me, that is a great example of what happens when he resurrects you, when you were dead and God brings you to life through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful example of the fact that God makes dead things alive. Jesus knew that this was going to be one of those moments that made known to many that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you know, we talk about this, and I always say, well, we're going to keep our church small because we're going to talk about sin because it's in the scriptures. But here's the thing. We live in a broken world, don't we? Like, like that's not surprising to any of you. If you've turned on the news or you've looked at social media, people are messed up. 
And when sin entered into the world, decay and death began. But God, oh, but God, can and even has redeemed death. Death is something that we're all going to have to deal with, church. I'm sorry. I mean, this isn't really a funeral sermon, but it could be. Death is something we're all going to have to deal with through those who are around us, those that we care about, and we're all personally going to have to deal with our own death one day because sin entered into the world. Decay and death entered into the world. And because all this decaying and death is inevitable, because sin has entered into the fray, God decided not to stop the possibility of death. He could have. But he decided not to stop the possibility of death. He decided to redeem it. And God redeemed death by defeating it. See, there are three things that you can be sure of in this life. Death, taxes, and that we're going to talk about the resurrection on Sunday. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and was sacrificed and given over to death so that those who could trust him and him alone would have access to God through Jesus' perfect life, lived his death on the cross, and by his triumphant, preeminent, and powerful resurrection physically from the dead. Because Christ defeated death, if we are with him, we too get to see death defeated in our own lives. It's not that you won't die. It's that you won't stay there. Because Christ has accomplished our redemption from the grave on our behalf for us. So look at what Paul says as he's writing to the church in Corinth. And let's just be real. A lot of us want to be the book of Acts. We want to be that church, the early church. Well, we all end up being the church in Corinth, don't we? And Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth the thing that they've forgotten, I believe, in verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. For what I received, Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance. He's not going to talk about uh, how the church was put together. He's not going to talk about uh, uh, how often you go to church or how much money you give or if you believe in predestination or if you believe in creation. What he says is of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Well, if they're asleep, just go wake them up. No, they're dead. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. That's Jesus' brother. How hard would it be for you to convince your brother that you were God? Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, Paul says. See, we will not confuse the gospel here with moral modification. We don't want you to think the good news of Christianity is that you can be somewhere on Sunday morning and have good friends. The good news is that death was defeated, forgiveness is available, and Jesus is alive. And death does not have final say in a Christian's life. In a Christian's life, we have a future hope. 
a future resurrection, a future glorification. And with that, we do not need to put on seances or pray to dead people, but we as children of God, the God most high, get to be expectant and excited that those who have fallen asleep from this life, who have trusted Christ, will be awoke. They will be made truly woke, church. Resurrected to life in eternity, lit up by the glory of God forever and ever. Amen.